1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
2: Welcome to Stripe Talk. This story is true and relevant, even though it will sound like the beginning of a fable. There once was a man who had the bad luck to gain power before he gained wisdom. His name was Pyrrhus, and during Greece's Hellenistic period, in 306 BC specifically, he was made king of Epirus at the age of 13. Everything about him seemed mythic. His name literally meant flammable. He was a second cousin to Alexander the Great, and it was said that anyone with a disease of the spleen could be cured by the mere touch of the big toe on Pyrrhus's right foot. He was not a great CEO. He struggled with managing money and always overspent, especially on mercenaries. To use a modern term, Pyrrhus was big on mergers. He married five times in his short life. He was surrounded by intrigue, lost his throne for four years, then won it back. But in some way, the intrigue served him. In 302 BC, Greece was plunged into the War of the Successors, a fight between five rival generals, each of whom had sworn to share power after Alexander the Great's death and each of whom then violated that oath out of a naked desire for singular control. It was like fighting for market share, but with swords and sandals, and Pyrrhus was good at it. Many thought he was the foremost military strategist of his day. When the War of the Successors was over, two generals were left standing, Pyrrhus and a rival named Neoptolemus. Despite hating one another, they agreed to share power, an alliance no one thought would hold. It didn't. Pyrrhus soon learned that his alliance partner, Neoptolemus, was plotting to kill him. So he invited Neoptolemus to dinner, presumably at a restaurant owned by Wolfgang Puck, and had Neoptolemus murdered on the spot. With his rival gone, Pyrrhus went into hostile takeover mode. Soon his holdings included all of Epirus and Thessaly, half of Macedonia, and two theme parks. But what he wanted was Rome. Rome was not an empire yet, just a startup. The many Greeks lived in southern Italy and the growth of Rome's military to the north made them nervous. That gave Pyrrhus the justification to attack. To be sure it was the right thing to do, he consulted a priestess called Pythonus, better known as the Oracle at Delphi, who was said to speak for the god Apollo. The priestess promised him a victory. So Pyrrhus sailed across the Strait of Otranto with 20,000 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, 2,000 archers, 500 slingers, 20 war elephants and two labor negotiators, and he attacked, first at Heraclea and then at Ascalon. The oracle proved to be right. Pyrrhus won both battles, but doing so had cost him thousands of men and far too many officers. He had won, but he had lost, and his Italian campaign ended as the Romans simply recruited new troops and reloaded. Pyrrhus and his army limped home, claiming to have won, but he had just given the world a new term the Pyrrhic victory, a win that comes at a cost so devastating that it becomes a loss. Pyrrhus kept going because acquisitions were in his nature. He attacked Peloponnesia, but his myth had been punctured. His soldiers no longer sought the healing powers of his magic big toe, and his attack on Sparta cost him the life of his eldest son. Still, Pyrrhus pressed on until, in a battle for the city of Argos, he found himself trapped on a narrow street in a horseback-to-horseback sword fight with an Argive soldier shockingly the soldier's mother was watching this skirmish from her rooftop in an effort to save her son she threw a heavy tile at pyrrhus which hit him so hard it knocked him off his horse and paralyzed him enemy troops stunned by their good fortune cut off his head his name would live forever for terrible reasons the world has seen a lot of pyrrhic victories napoleon and hitler each rampaged through russia in hugely successful attacks but the disastrous Russian winters that followed sealed the doom of both dictators. Robert E. Lee's masterpiece of a win at Chancellorsville was a pyrrhic victory in that it made his subsequent loss at Gettysburg inevitable. On December 7, 1941, the Empire of Japan nearly destroyed America's entire Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor and in so doing, cost themselves a war. Richard Nixon's version of a Pyrrhic victory lay in covertly financing a bunch of political sabotage on Democratic rivals. That brought him a landslide re-election in 1972, but owing to the Watergate break-in, it also cost him his presidency. One could argue that finally winning an abortion ban from the Supreme Court will cost the Republican Party electorally for the next 20 years. Getting Trump elected in 2016 inarguably cost that party its soul. Here's another Pyrrhic victory. The efforts being made to hold together an alliance which has now forced two fabled unions to strike at the same time. It's the AMPTS or the AMPTC. Take your pick. Tech companies and legacy media companies don't belong together. They have wildly different DNAs and vastly different corporate needs. All they share is a similar goal, which is to devour one another. Like Pyrrhus, the Alliance is trying to make allies of countries that don't like each other, and the distrust among them is high. Yet they are fused together as a bargaining unit into a caucus room that has become a very unhappy place. From the jump, the truth of this strike has been that the fracture in our business is not between the companies and the writers. It's between the legacy companies and the tech companies. Wall Street knows this. That's why in the four months since we walked out, the stocks of Amazon, Apple and Netflix have all gone up, while the stocks of Sony, Warner Discovery, Disney and Paramount have all gone down. Paramount by a shocking 42%, and yet the Alliance holds. I know some of the people in that room. I like and respect them enormously. They're good people and they're good parents. They've helped and supported me, but they've been given an impossible task to make proposals that work for all and each of them when none of them can agree on what that is. Any one of those companies on its own could easily negotiate a deal with the Guild that would be thrilling to neither side, but fair to both the guild's ask is not very expensive. And the template thus established would make a SAG deal possible. It would then be accepted by the other companies and we'd all go back to work. Instead, beset by infighting, the Alliance maintains its unity, winning that battle while losing the war. That's Pyrrhic. Upon his death, Pyrrhus's body was returned to Greece. Like his name, he proved to be flammable during a public cremation, before which his big toe had been severed and hidden in a temple. Our business, which we all cherish, is like that, eminently capable of going up in flames. We can save it by using our wisdom and our power, by thinking less about winning and more about living to fight another day. As Pyrrhus showed us, we are all capable, even the richest among us, of getting knocked off our horse mid-battle. To discuss that and to put it into a political context, please meet Congresswoman Susan Wild of Pennsylvania and Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. Susan, Sherrod, welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank
1: you. Good
0: to be with you.
2: Susan, can you tell me a Pyrrhic victory in politics?
1: Yeah, the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Kevin McCarthy, who for so long craved the speakership and now he's got it. If that's Mm -hmm. not a Pyrrhic victory, I don't know what is.
0: Sherrod, what what about for you? Um, Emerson once said that history is a battle between the innovators and the conservators. And too often the conservators win, call them, call that a pure victory, but it's important that we continue to move forward in these battles. And when we win, we win really big as we do on, on major labor issues that, that, you know, that move the country forward for a generation. And so that's where my focus pretty much always is. Um, I know that
2: the two of you introduced a bill together Um the striking and locked out workers health protection act um, which of course will interest uh members of my guild and and sag who are striking uh, although i consider them to be locked out um, where is that bill and, and what are its prospects
0: susan you want to go first on that
1: sure i'd be happy to um, well first of all i was thrilled to co-sponsor it because um labor for me is a huge part of my base it's a huge presence here in my district and I think that the way that, um, and by the way, I had a mother that stri- struck over the years with the Writers Guild. Um, so labor issues are really important to me. And um, the fact that workers were 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 being denied their health care when they went out on strike, and, and keep in mind that their right to strike is a protected activity under the National Labor Relations Act. But if you take their health care away, it's tantamount to telling them you can't strike. So um, the bill right now is is pending Um, in the House where we've got a Republican majority, hopefully for not too much longer. Um, It's not likely to go anywhere, Um, but and it probably won't even get a hearing before my committee.
0: Um, I I, I walk picking lines pretty often, and I see I just was part of a helping with some Democratic colleagues uh, and a potential strike uh, in Cleveland. Um, with Lutheran Hospital, with the, against the Cleveland Clinic, and all of us were on the side of the workers. These are 150 workers, not a not a huge uh, local SEIU that would have potentially lost everything. And these were most almost all low income. we low wage workers. They're not the nurses. They're the they're the support staff. They're home care workers. They're LPNs. Uh, they're the cleaning crew. All of that. And so um, to me. And I, I've seen, I walked took okay, just at the UAW Hall in Youngstown, in Lordstown this week, and they all, that, that may be a strike, uh, the UAW against the three big automakers. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be huge. Uh, I don't want to ever put the thumb on the scale by having them denied health care and denied what they've earned. So um, I don't, I, I think the chances are close to zero on the house, as Susan said. She knows that body better than I do because of McCarthy. Um, But they're not really high in the Senate to move on this either. Um, Most Democrats overwhelmingly support this idea. um, But we also they also know that the House won't move on it. But something I'd like to do, we win the majority in the House, keep the majority in the Senate, reelect Biden.
1: So I serve on a committee which, when I was elected and came into office in 2019, was called the Education and Labor Committee. I've been on it ever since. But when the Republicans took the majority um, last year, they Renamed it the Education and Workforce Committee because apparently there's something wrong with the word labor, and I can assure you that as soon as we take back the majority, it will be go back to being the Education and Labor Committee, which is what it should be.
2: Okay, can you take me through that? You know, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time is the power of language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, for example, if if you call something universal background checks in uh, on the issue of guns, it's not nearly as popular. As if you call it violent history checks, if you call it right. violent history checks, ninety-five percent of the country suddenly agrees with you, including seventy-three mm-hmm. percent of the NRA. But forgetting that, why do you suppose uh, Republicans don't like the word labor?
1: Well, I assume they don't like the word labor because it it the connotation is organized labor, and of course they they loathe organized labor. Um, I you know you could say that the word labor and workforce are synonymous, but I I don't really think they are. I think the use of the word workforce, in some ways, is um, almost um, demeaning. And by that I mean, you know, workers are not just cogs in a wheel that show up and, you know, insert widgets in parts and then go home um, after way too many hours on on a factory line. They are, you know, they're skilled, they've got a craft, um, it's what organized labor is known for: their apprenticeships and, and their training, and that's why union products are generally, in fact, almost always a better product if you are buying or uh, either the, a product or a service. And so, um, I assume that's they don't like that, the connection to organized labor, and that's exactly why I think it should be the Education and Labor Committee.
2: And when you are uh, talking to Republican colleagues uh, on that committee, and I'm assuming they're not all MAGA crazies, there must be some um, centrist Republicans on that committee. Yeah, Do,
1: not, oh. so much, not so much on that committee, Billy. Um, <laughs> just to give you. Give you a flavor of things Uh, not too long ago. Remember, it's education as well as labor. Uh, We had a what we call a markup of a bill that went till three in the morning that was all about trans kids and sports. So that probably gives you a flavor for what the committee is like right now um, under the uh, chairpersonship of Virginia Fox, who is as far right as they come. And 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 I would say there are not really any moderate. There are really no moderates on that committee
2: and are they openly hostile to uh the 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 goals of labor
1: yes um they are openly hostile because they they would they would message it by saying that it's uh inflating prices um that 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 labor unions are taking part of the the workers' wages for union dues. You know, they have all kinds of ways of messaging organized labor as being bad. But what it ultimately comes down to, and they don't say this, but what it comes down to is it cuts into the profits and the control that uh, large corporations and industries have um, when workers unionize. And that's what they and their corporate donors don't like.
2: Sure. Do you think it's possible for a company
0: to own too much? Sure, it is. And I um, you can look at some big tech firms, you can look a lot of places. Uh, and um, but it's it's always the most important thing to me is um, these that, that workers get a piece of the pie. If corporations, if, if, if there's a there's a big merger going on in Ohio right now with Kroger Company and uh, those workers, it's a, it's a huge, hugely organized, overwhelmingly union plant, union um, set of stores. Um, many of them are Californians, and I will go into the details there. But um, when workers have a seat at the table, everything's different. And I want workers to have a seat at the table, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Croker or, or GM, and too often they don't. But if they're at the table making decisions on behalf of their members, um, that really under, uh, it, it really does um, prohibit a lot of the problems that these big corporations have it, I mean it goes it really goes down i I spent a lot of time in a place called East Palestine Ohio it's where the big rail
1: yeah. um,
0: not far from from Susan state right course yards away literally and um, those were the, that 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 company Norfolk Southern followed the Wall Street model you lay off workers your stock price goes up uh, the, the the executives uh, do stock buybacks the, overall, that the rich get richer and workers get screwed with this Wall Street model. And um, that, to me, is to always examine it through the eyes of workers. That way, that yeah, workers be at the table to organize and to to have a say for those people whom they represent.
2: In, in East Palestine, could we make the argument that the layoff of workers um, was causative in terms of the crash
0: itself? We don't know for sure. But we do know we do know that um, the previous administration work, weakened worker safety laws. Uh, we do know that uh, track inspections were fewer uh, as a result of us. We do know that that there is not as many personnel on the train as there have been in the past. The railroads now want a law to allow them to have one engineer, no conductor, one engineer, one human being driving trains that are two hundred plus cars long. That makes no sense. That's what they're fighting for, and using all their connections with lobbyists in Washington. Uh, we know that um, that uh, that the rail lobby fights all kind of safety rules. When you bring a train through a community, through a state, uh, the work that the communities don't know on that train, the local workers, the local fire departments, all that. So I don't know if that train crash would have happened uh, with 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 uh, if the company had done layoffs. I think it makes it more likely. Which not just we saw the, the, the derailment in East Falcine. We saw six other derailments in my state uh, within six months of that derailment. None of them were serious because they weren't carrying these kind of hazardous materials. Ohio's got the third most rail lines of any state in the country, Texas, Illinois, and Ohio. And because we're an industrial state and everything goes through Ohio when they're carrying on trains, and uh, we need much better. And the rail lobbyists, you know, you can, you can look, Billy, you have a real sense of history, evidence from the books behind you. Um, we know that the most groups in America for 100 years have been Wall Street and the rail lobby and the railroads. They've gotten their way with Congress and regulators far too often for far too long. Um, that's why we stand up to the rail lobby as we stand up to Wall Street and fight back.
1: All
2: right, well, this gives me a great political overview. Uh, now let's talk about one issue in particular. Um, one of the issues that we're dealing with in our strikes out here. Uh, the the Writers Guild and SAG AFTRA uh, has to do with AI, and I'm wondering how aware you are and how aware DC is of AI as a looming threat to laborers. Is it something you deal with quite a bit?
1: I'm very much aware of the threat to creative talent, uh you know whether it is writers, musicians, um, you know, all Actors. kinds of people and. Actors, and we've seen it. I mean, you know, it's just staggering that um, what has happened so quickly. And so there are leaders in Congress who are very focused on this. Ted Lieu of California, of course, is one of them. Um, and you know, I, so I certainly recognize the problem that the uh, the television and film industry is having and their concerns about AI. It would be unrealistic not to think that it's a huge threat.
2: The group that we are currently striking against, the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA, is uh, called the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call them those producers, they're actually companies. Yep. But it's essentially, okay. I think 350 uh, companies that make film and television. Um, among them, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, uh, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Comcast, Sony, Paramount—those um, mm-hmm. are the big eight. Um, collectively, those eight dominate our industry and cannot figure out uh, how to how to match their own needs in order to make a proposal to uh, to the guild. Um, mm-hmm. Are there examples in uh, in other industries of organizations like? the alliance that we're dealing with here, um, multiple uh, owners that negotiate collectively with one union?
1: The airlines are, are not a bad example, um, although you do right now have the situation of United Airlines pilots uh, who collectively, um, and by the way, there's only one airline and that's Delta that is not unionized for anybody who cares to know. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Because of their collective power, that my understanding, and I'm, I'm friends with a couple of United Airlines pilots, they just recently um, were able to get to an agreement that avoided a strike. They're going to vote on it, uh, I think next week or something. Um, and, but that was literally because of their negotiating power. Um, and you know, the one airline that isn't unionized, those pilots don't have, and, and their flight attendants, by the way, don't have that kind of power.
2: It's interesting that you would bring up pilots because um, they serve as another example uh, when you think about the benefits of organized labor. Uh, for years prior to nine eleven, the Pilots Association was screaming about having doors to cockpits that were locked right. and that were protected mm-hmm. uh, and that were impregnable. You
1: mean they were screaming that they wanted
2: them? They wanted them. Yes. They wanted them and, right. and the uh, airlines didn't want to pay for it. Right, And this was one thing that the union didn't have the power to get. Mm -hmm. And of course, the doors weren't um, impregnable. And that's how 9-11 happened. Um, An example Mm -hmm. of how a union is sometimes looking out for the safety of its workers and the safety of its passengers um, and management in that case wasn't listening.
0: Of course. I I would add one other real quick story. My wife, who is a well-known writer who knows Billy, she um she was 16 years old her dad carried a utility workers union card for 37 years um has since passed away she um she got an asthma attack at the age of 16. and she said without my dad's union card i wouldn't have been able to get the ambulance to the hospital they lived an hour and a half away um and i wouldn't have gotten two weeks at the cleveland clinic and it saved my life that union card so that that's what's always at stake in these issues and i that's why i empathize so much with the actors and writers on strike now who, um, who know that their, their their futures are at stake in a, in a good labor agreement with management. Um, so I've had some
2: labor experts uh, on the show who have talked about how union workers don't just make more money, and obviously they do, um, but they actually live longer. Uh, they're healthier. They, they tend to be more democratic. Um, they volunteer more hours. They spend more time at their children's schools. Um, there are numbers to demonstrate how unions change a person um, and make that person uh, a, a deeper contributor to uh, to the democracy of, of their community. Um, the expression that was used on, on this podcast, a brilliant expression, was that they create a thicker democracy. Um, have you
0: seen examples of that, Sherrod? Yeah, I, I, I like very much the way you said that. I, I mean, workers, workers who... My, my wife writes about the daily mess of life that everyone endures, but workers, I mean, they're, they're su- such a large number of people in this country just barely get by financially. They, they have to worry about their kids um, having enough money for school clothes. They have to worry about paying, paying for food and for rent and transportation. Um, I, just, I hear stories all the time about people who can't get to work on Sunday because the bus in a metropolitan area doesn't serve her neighborhood. For this, they serve six days, not the seventh day they have to Uber to work or they'll get fired and that eats up a big part of it. All those kinds of things, the union workforce rarely has to worry as much about. So you're right. It's, it's better wages. It's better benefits. It's safer work conditions. It's, um, it's a more secure retirement. It's reliable, it's a reliable way to make a living rather than cobbled together. And it's you know, a big part of it is control over your schedule and your life. So you actually have some say over can I, can I not work that evening when Tuesday's in the summer so I watch my daughter play softball? I mean, it's, it's all, all of those things that, that more upper income people never have to think about. A whole lot of struggling people on the siding. So when you talk about dignity of work, Billy, you're really talking about um, that. What, what And that's what Dr. King really meant is to kind of weave together civil rights, human rights, worker rights. So they have a seat at the table in many ways, not just at the bargaining table in a union negotiation, but in their lives generally. And I love what you said about more a part of their community because they they have the security to be able to do that.
2: I want to talk to you about government's role again. But in this case, once a strike has begun, um, both SAG and AFTRA were forced into striking uh, by contract offers from the alliance that would have put both of our guilds uh, out of existence within five to 10 years. And would have been devastating to our members. So, of course, there was no choice but to walk. But now a lot of people are paying a price for it. The state of California is paying a price for it. So is the state of New York. So is the state of Georgia. Um, And it's not just people who are on strike that are hurting. It's all kinds of craftspeople. It's Teamsters. It's IOTC. It's the person who owns the coffee shop. It's the person who owns the dry cleaner. It's it's the dog walker. Um, It's the babysitter. It's everybody who's now not being employed because people in our business aren't making any money. Um, When the government sees that kind of widespread pain um, uh, as a result of a strike, what is the government's appropriate role in terms of stepping in and trying to provide mediation? Uh, Or is there no such thing?
1: I am not a fan for the most part of government getting involved once a strike has started. I do think, you mentioned the role of mediation, that kind of thing. I think government should be there as a willing um, arbiter if industry and the union uh, both want it. But I'll give you an example, a recent example, when UPS looked like it was gonna go out on strike, the Teamsters were gonna strike, and that was just, That was really going to be devastating for, you know, everything's online now. We talked about Amazon Prime before, but, you know, that was really going to be huge. And there was a lot of talk about the Biden administration and whether they should intervene in that potential strike. As it turned out, they got a contract. They didn't go out on strike. And I talked to a number of the Teamsters here in my district, um, and the overall feeling was, no, we don't want the government to interfere because we want to be able to do our negotiation um, to get a fair contract, you know the way that we are constructed to do so. Um, and you know we're seeing this. We're seeing now, of course, UAW um, is threatening to strike. That that could be another situation where people could make the argument that the government should get involved because so many people and so many supply chains will be affected. But I do think, I think our role, I'm going to say our role, because I'm a member of government, is to do everything we can to make unions strong so that they can then negotiate their best deal with their employers. Once you get involved, you know, I used to be a lawyer, uh, Billy. I I spent 35 years trying cases. So, you know, that also means that I spent a lot of time in judges chambers settling cases and, you know, I I never wanted to have my hands tied in a negotiation. I wanted to be able to negotiate the best possible outcome for my client without a judge telling me what he or she thought I should do. And it's, I kind of view this the same way.
2: Sherrod, sure, let me ask you a question. I mean, so much of, of your career has been about the dignity of work. Um, where do you see big picture labor uh, standing today? Do you feel like labor whose power was,
0: certainly took a hit. Um, do you feel like labor is making a comeback? Yes, uh, labor is, I've just seen, I've seen so much more life in the labor movement now. Young people overwhelmingly who want there to be unions. I, I've been to Starbucks and and helped in organizing drives. And, in Youngstown last week, as I said, with Altium workers, we did this this really cool program. I, I didn't really help build it, but I got to speak at their graduation. Uh, we know the building trades Uh, Carpenters, electricians, millwrights, uh, union uh, laborers, operators, uh, pipe fitters have traditionally not been a place where a lot of women and people of color have worked. That's changing dramatically. This graduation exercise was a pre-apprentice training graduation, and those are going to be more people in the trades. I see that. People know that joining a union gives them a middle-class lifestyle. Uh, They know how it changes lives. They know how it makes the economy more efficient and makes workers more productive. Um, I think that's that's seen across the board. And this is the best time. I think we have the most pro-union president uh, that we've had in some time. So I, I think it's really important to seize the moment, as Susan's doing in the House, uh, to move forward on the protect the right to organize. I, I am convinced if we win if we win the House, and I think we're going to, Keep the Senate real. the President. We're going to have the protecting the right to organize past. That will make it. That will take many of the barriers from organizing. Put knock them down and give people the chance to join a union if they vote to do that. And that's so important for the future of the country.
2: Susan, is labor still a a, a huge force in electoral politics in America?
1: Oh hell yes. I mean, I will say um, that. I mean look I come from a district that was the home of Bethlehem Steel the the late great Bethlehem Steel as I call it. Um this was and is a strong labor community. Um, it's become much stronger over the last 15 20 years. There were a number of years after the demise of Bethlehem Steel which for the, for anybody who doesn't know had to go out of business because of outsourcing steel to China. Um and it was devastating to this community. We had workers, middle class workers where one person could 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 work and the other could stay home with the kids and they earned a living wage and you know it was th- thanks to labor unions. Mack Trucks is also based here, another great union employer. Um and so what I have seen here in this district is there was a period of time when service industries were on the rise after after Bethlehem Steel uh, went out of business in the late 90s and and they were not as susceptible to being um, uh, organized or labor organized. But manufacturing has come back in a big way over the last 20 years here, and with it, the rise of labor unions and. It, Everything that the Senator said a few minutes ago, and I think you said it too, Billy, younger people are interested in being part of a labor union. Um, People are recognizing the benefits to being with a a union. I will tell you the COVID pandemic, uh, when a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, the people who didn't in my district were were the people that were part of organized labor. They might not have been out working. But they had benefits; they had a paycheck coming in, and that was all because of the the strong, strong network that their organized labor had had created. So, um, yeah, we're we're certainly seeing a strong comeback here. We've we're fortunate in this district to have a lot of manufacturers who understand the importance to our community of of having organized labor. Um, so. It it it's definitely coming back here. It's it's going strong, and I it predict that it will go stronger. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that I'm working to pass the PRO Act in the House, and why when we get back the majority, the Education and Labor Committee will again take up the PRO Act. Um, we have got, you know the past four decades, big corporations and the wealthy have been getting richer, and working families have been struggling to get by. Um, we've got to make sure that workers are empowered to fight for the wages they deserve.
2: Can you give us the one minute pitch on the pro act?
1: Sure. I'm happy to give you the the pitch on the pro act is is that it is the most important tool for any person who works for someone else that we have ever contemplated. Um, it is it protects workers. And most, and what it does is it preserves their right to organize. So I will tell you when back when we had the majority and we had hearings on the PRO Act, we heard from so many people about how they could not have even a meeting to discuss organizing on company premises during company time. And yet, management could have forced meetings that you had to attend or you lost wages. Talking about the evils of unions and 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 why they shouldn't have them, Um, corporations literally spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year to bust up unions, and here's a killer: they're allowed to deduct that money from their taxes as a business expense. Um, I have a bill called the No Tax Breaks for Union Busting Act, um, which would end the subsidization of corporate union busting and put American workers first. So. Um, But we've got, workers are the reason that people like Jeff Bezos are billionaires. Um, Workers are the reason that we have so many incredibly strong and wealthy corporations, but it's all, it's not, the, the benefit to the workers is not going along with that. Here we are, incredibly successful. This country's seen a resurgence of manufacturing, um, which is just going to increase, and um, and yet workers aren't being appropriately compensated. It, when you look at the comparison with what their uh, their CEOs, their C suite people are earning, so um, you know it's. I think the pro act is essential. Listen, I. I come from a union family. My mom was a newspaper reporter. Some of your listeners may remember the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Uh, I do. She wrote She wrote for the Herald Examiner, and they went out on strike. They never went off strike. That union was literally busted. And, you know, and it's, you know, now they just completely um, – and there were a lot – lot lot of union members i remember i was a, i was a young i think i was in middle school or something and i would go with my mom to strike headquarters there were hundreds of people in strike headquarters every day it's kind of tragic how we've gotten away from that um but the other thing is that people are recognizing the that you know, a four year college isn't for everybody. First of all, huge amount of student loan debt. We won't even talk about that right now. But a lot of people don't want to go to college. And what we know here in my community, and my community, I always say, is sort of a microcosm of of middle America. Um, technical schools here um, and apprentice programs that the labor unions are providing are terrific ways to get an education, to learn skills. Um, that are needed that will result in real jobs without incurring student loan debt. Um, You know, the Department of Labor says that 93% of those who complete a registered apprenticeship are employed making more than $77,000 a year. Um, So, yeah, and and I've got another bill, the National Apprentice Act of 2023, uh, which really is to support these apprentice programs. Anyway, I think it's critical. I think that workers need to regain the power that they have lost. Quite honestly, in many, many, over many, many years, as the one percent ha- have gotten wealthier and wealthier on their backs.
2: We will leave it there, Susan Sherrod. Um, thank you so much for all the work you're doing, and thank you for being on the show.
1: Billy, thank you. The feeling is mutual. I'm always happy to talk to you about. Any issue that really affects um, working people, unions obviously do. And um, I just appreciate the opportunity to be on your show.
0: Uh, thank you, Billy, very much. Susan, thanks for your work in the house. And,
1: hey, thank uh, you.
0: Forward together.
2: I find myself stuck on a couple things now the idea that a company can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on union busting and get a tax break for it, a deduction. That the GOP is so contemptuous of labor that they took the word labor out of a committee called the Labor Committee. That the rail lobby spends money fighting rail safety. What do these things have in common? They're all pyrrhic victories, all losses masquerading as wins. This week, Warner Discovery announced that the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes have cost Warner Discovery somewhere around $500 million. Let me underline that. Half a billion dollars. That is a train wreck. During that same span, 125 days, the AMPTS has made one offer to the Guild. One move. If the Alliance had agreed on May 2nd to every single demand the Guild had made without countering, the cost to order discovery back then would have been $40 million. Of course, the number would have actually been far lower because the Guild never ever gets everything it actually asked for and most of the cost would have been absorbed into individual episodes and not to Warner's bottom line, so the number, of course, would have been far south of 40. Instead, they're losing $500 million and counting, and they've made one offer in 125 days. I was never great at math, but that seems backwards to me, and kind of corporate malfeasancy. The current dance at the AMPTS office in Sherman Oaks is this. The company's made an offer on August 11th. The Guild countered on August 14th. The companies came back a week later to say, you should take our offer. And now they are standing on ceremony, demanding a counter from the Guild to their non-counter, which the Guild can't do because we made the last actual counter. This is every bit as petty as Republicans changing the name of a committee from labor to workforce, but it's a lot more expensive. $500 million to one company and ticking. The members of the AMPTS don't have a priestess oracle to turn to. They have Carol Lombardini, who, like Pythonus, keeps telling them, keep fighting, you're going to win. It's important to remember that she said it to Pyrrhus, too, right before he went up in flames. I want to thank my guests, Congresswoman Susan Wild and Senator Sherrod Brown. I hope you'll support both in 2024. I want to thank my producer, Shane Whitaker. Please join me next week. When my guests will be famous trustbusters, President William Howard Taft and Ida Tarbell. This is Strike Talk.
0: America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights